Hi, my name is Susan. I've been arrested 32 times just for listening to people talk with each other. The problem was I used to hide in the bushes outside the windows of people's homes to enjoy listening to strangers talk to each other. It's just something I like to do. I get bored and lonely sometimes, you know. Hey, Susan, don't do all that. There's another way to enjoy random conversations? Now, thanks to the podcast show, I can enjoy listening to conversations with strangers and learn something new every week. No more listening outside the window just to enjoy a good conversation. Tune in weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe for updates on your favorite platform to the Toddcast show and help our podcast family continue to grow and share around the world. All of you, the Toddcast show is dedicated to exploring the human condition through conversation with strangers. We explore the positive, interesting, and oftentimes shocking side of human nature. In each episode of the Toddcast show, I talk with strangers in a down-to-earth, old-school, and heartfelt way about their life. Nothing is ever scripted, everything is spontaneous, positive, and we never discuss politics. You won't know what to expect next. Join in the conversation to laugh, love, learn, and grow with others around the planet. Who will I call next? Tune in to find out every Wednesday at midnight Pacific or for playback anytime on your favorite podcast listening platform. And stay connected with us at ToddCastShow.com. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The ToddCast Show. I'm your host, Todd Mira, and with us today is our guest, Dick Wybrow. Hey, Dick, how you doing tonight? Good, man, and uh, it's this afternoon and in the future because you're talking to me from Auckland, New Zealand. So so I am living in Holy tomorrow. Crap. I'm in wow. tomorrow. This is That's the power amazing. of the Toddcast show, brother. The power of the Toddcast show isn't just global. You are cross-dimensional, going through time and space, and now you've reached into tomorrow, and you're talking to a man from the future. <laughs> We're in That's tomorrow funny. afternoon. And um, <laughs> I will say, uh, I am not allowed to tell you what happens. Uh, that is something <laughs> for New Zealanders. We're assigned to uh, secrecy. Uh, but everything's going to be fine, except uh, except that one thing. But the rest of it is going to be absolutely fine. So don't worry. Everything's going to be great. You are awesome. And you're no ordinary dick, clearly. <laughs> I hope not. You know, my my father's the one. So so uh, so my father was, a, that's how we got here to New Zealand. My, my father was a Kiwi. He went up to, uh, many years ago, went to the U.S. He wanted to move to the U.S. And they're like, oh, we got enough Kiwi, some quota or something. And so he went up to Canada, met my mother. But he always wanted to be uh, in the U.S. And so uh, so we came down when I was nine year, uh, about nine years old. But but in my father's family, we had they had been Johns. Every boy had been a John all the way back to like the in the nineteenth century. Had been Johns, and so so he was like, "Well, my son's name will be John," and my mother's like, "No." Uh, no, because she decided when she was like a teenager, when I have a boy, if I have a boy, his name's going to be Richard. 
And so she just kind of went toe to toe with him, which is something, man. This is late 60s. This is not necessarily something that was common. And she was like, yeah, I'm then put my foot down this. He's not going to be named after a toilet. And so, so, so my, uh, so I was named Richard, but I do think the first person to call me Dick was my father. Uh, Dick okay. is obviously a diminutive of, of Richard. But I just don't think you like me very much. <laughs> that means a lot of different things to a lot of different. It really does. It really does. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't know if my mother realizes. Yes, I'm not named after a toilet, but uh, it's something else. I suppose. But so no. So but I go. But I go by Dick. I mean, almost out of spite, maybe. But yeah. So I, I go by Dick Wybrow. Very cool. Well, boy, I'll tell you, man, you've got uh, you've got the right approach. I'll, that was probably the best intro I've ever had with a guest. You answered two questions right off the bat. Great. <laughs> so well done, Dick. That uh, well, the advantage is, of course, the advantage, of course, I'm in the future, so I know all the questions you're about to ask. We've already that's true. That that's true exactly. And uh, they don't have the lottery there, but if you could just look up the winning lottery numbers for me over here, that would be really nice. We've got we've got our version of it here, Lotto, um, but it's just paltry compared to the American numbers because every now and then it'll add up in the newspaper. And when you do the conversion, like it was a couple of months ago where the U.S. lottery was one billion dollars Kiwi. And they're like, well, who could possibly spend that kind of money? And I would tell them that half of that goes to taxes and they're just their jaws would drop. Um, yeah, exactly. here when they, when they win the lottery, they get to keep it. Yeah, I would imagine that that's probably a better way to go, actually getting to keep the money. But I remember when the lottery first came out, it was in California, and it was supposed to pay for schools and mm -hmm. educational resources and all that. What a bunch of BS, man. Like it, not, to get, it, not, yeah, not to get too far into it. Do you, know, do you know what they do, right? So let's say you have a lottery that's going to help fund schools, right? Mm -hmm. So so let's say the, the lottery makes, I'm just making numbers up, $10 million for schools. Well, they take that $10 million out of schools and put it somewhere else and replace it with the $10 million made from the lottery. So the schools don't make $10 million more. It's just the money, that $10 million block, now comes from the lottery. They pull it out of the school system and they spend it somewhere else. So, yeah, it's a, it's just a big, you know, three-card bond to you, whatever it might be. I mean, I'm not saying it's all a scam and it's a good thing because, you know, maybe some of that money um, goes to a good place, but it's not like, yes, this money is going to education in addition to the money is already there. It just replaces some other money so they can take and put it somewhere else. Wow. That's yeah. pretty slick. I don't know if I would have been ready for that information when I was younger, but yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that sounds about right. That's a government hoo-ha for you, man, I'll tell you. Yeah, they all do it. They all do it, man. It looks good on the campaign mm -hmm. literature, though, doesn't it? Oh, I should say it does. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for the uh, evening news, but like when it comes down to it, you know, it's a shame, you know. I, I really uh, find a lot of disappointment in things that are fake and you know, plastic and not solid. I like authenticity and, you know, honesty and integrity and the things that are real, you know, it's like those things really resonate with me. I just don't understand how people allow themselves to sink to that place where they can engage in deception and things that hurt other people. And, and the, you know, the house of uh, smoke and mirrors that you're talking about there that probably happens in all sorts of areas we don't even know about, you know. I think the sort of uh, that sort of reality, that sort of um, um, integrity, that comes from just people you meet, people you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations, because we end up having systems that end up getting bent in some way, 
And then when they're not regulated properly, when they're not taken care of to participate in those systems, people have to bend themselves into that. And one small example is just reading about it today. Some some guy is a weightlifter and somebody said, oh, he juices. And somebody else had said, they all do. And if you ever hope to compete as a weightlifter, even if you don't want to, you're going to be taking steroids at some point. And even people that are very honest, there's just no way that they compete on that level without doing it in some way. And so that's what I mean. To be able for an honest person to participate in some system, when that system gets bent and corrupted, and if that's not reined in some ways, well, the only way they could participate, which sounds like we're talking about politics to some extent, but we're not. But the only way for someone to participate is to kind of, I don't know, maybe trade away some of their integrity. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. And no slight against against anybody who has to do that. If that's your dream and that's what you got to do to do that, if you feel that's necessary, then then do it, man. It's do whatever do whatever you need to do to make yourself happy, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. Yeah, don't tell anybody. Not that they're going to not hear listening, but um, you know what? I was so enamored in our conversation, I completely forgot my rule about not talking about politics. That's why I backed out of it. That's why I backed out of the politics. Oh, thank you, thank you, Dick. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I pulled it back from the brink, brother. We're that's there. cool, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I've been really good about that actually, and um, I don't want to break my own rule and look like a. I'm actually not. Uh, I'm not very political. I'm borderline anarchist, so I'm not political. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm like a lazy anarchist. You know, I'm. You know, I don't believe in all these systems of governments, but I just don't have the strength to do anything about it. Man, you should uh, put out a book, The Lazy Anarchist Cookbook. That yeah. could be, man. Actually, that might, might, that might be a good seller. I should come up with yeah. something like that. That's a good call. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. So let's get back to Dick and his parents and the wonderful life that you've created, because I'm so curious. Um, I don't know too much about you, but you're a very interesting guy. And let's just tell people who you are right up front, just to get it out of the way. And that way it kind of uh, fills in as we go through the show. So what do you do for a living, Dick? So I'm an author, and I write um, I write humorous fiction, um, uh, usually sort of in the vein of supernatural, uh, because that that's fun for me to write in. Because I, you know, I, I can't seem to play within the rules, which sounds like a bit of a theme uh, so far. We're talking about, but uh, uh, so I like to write stuff stuff that's funny, but then be able to sort of like go off in a bunch of different directions, um, which sometimes pulls to the supernatural. But I would be loath to actually call the stuff I write necessarily supernatural fiction. Um, it's more just it's 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 an opportunity to kind of be funny. Uh, within the story, but not jokes funny, right? Not like I'm writing a joke book. I'm just writing mm-hmm. scenarios or writing character interactions that apparently people seem to find funny. It's done uh, really well on uh, this latest series. Kane has, it's, it's done uh, very, very well. It's uh, hit a number of bestseller lists on Amazon and, uh, and it got picked up by Podium, which is really exciting. If you're an audiobook listener, uh, Podium uh, has hired on a couple of narrators and it's going to turn it into a, a professional audiobook, man. And so that comes out here in about a month or so. That's not a pitch. I'm just telling you the thing I'm excited about right now because I spoke to a couple of my narrators today, the two narrators, and it's neat because this is something I wrote in a in a, a two-car gar- carpeted garage in New Zealand at four o'clock in the morning. And these two Hollywood trained actors, you should hear the pedigree on these people. Now they're mm-hmm. going to put all their skills and talent to it, just create this amazing theater of the mind, a, a blockbuster movie of the mind uh, of uh, of this story, which I, it's going to be like me sort of hearing the story for the first time because it's their interpretation of it. It's going to be really, Dude. really neat. 
I love that. And by the way, yeah, you're all about it. Uh, pitching is part of the podcast, just so you know. So we usually do that later in the show and we will, yeah. but um, I definitely want to promote um, what you're about and what you do. And people will know exactly how to find you, believe me. Um, no question about that. Yeah, um, we're and that at all. Yeah, I just want you to know, though, I want you to pitch. Um, so if you feel like you want to throw another ball down towards home plate, you just go right ahead. <laughs> I'll do it. All right. So, so, so then I grew up in in the U.S. So I was um, I was a shy kid. I was nine years old, a chubby, red haired, nine year old Canadian in New Jersey. Now that is a target. <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah. So you were born in Canada, then, right? Yeah, exactly. I was born in Winnipeg. I was okay, born in Winnipeg. Perfect. And, perfect. Uh, but then, like I said, my father always wanted to come to the U.S., and so he brought us over when I was nine years old. Although I think for a short period of that time, we weren't totally legal because we moved into this house uh, in New Jersey, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, and a big house, bigger than I'd ever seen before, um, like three stories. It was it was nuts. You get lost in the damn place. Uh, but we didn't move any of the furniture in. And I think what it was is my dad was nervous that if when the big moving truck showed up, that's kind of an official. They've moved into the country. So the yeah. big Mayflower trucks instead dumped all of our stuff in storage. So for two months, we camped in this massive three-story house, just sleeping bags and pillows. <laughs> that's basically how we live for the first third of it. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. Let's, um, let's do something probably a little strange. Um, I don't know how many people ask you this question, but... Tell me, Dick, yes. what is the very earliest memory that you have in your life? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the very earliest memory in your life? It's difficult because, you know, memories, uh, memories are basically proteins in the brain. And every time you access them, you change those memories, change your proteins, right? And so I've been told stories about when I was younger, and I no longer know if those are memories or I'm accessing the stories that were told to me. But I suppose one of the first memories that I believe I have is uh, swimming in a ditch in, uh, I think it was Transcona, which is outside of Winnipeg, uh, swimming with a cousin in a ditch and a neighbor coming by and barking at us because apparently <laughs> the ditch was the water there, uh, because it was filled up with water, we'd get rains all the time. Um, and the water was filled up so high that apparently there were a lot of chiggers. And I didn't know what that was, but there's just tiny little bugs that would burrow into your skin and I just remember having no idea what these things were but when they were described to me I just remember being horrified to think that I would have all these little bugs drilling into my skin so maybe that's what it is so either my mother liked telling that story because it showed people what a moron I was as a child <laughs> or, or that 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 the that the the image of little bugs drilling into my skin kind of brought me online in my um, my consciousness as uh, as a human being i don't know which yeah one. yeah the trauma triggered something i think of that and uh yeah. yeah you're not kidding when i found out i think ticks and chiggers are the same thing if i'm not mistaken i, th I think tick. yeah the, yeah ticks are the ones that are fat they sit on the surface and chiggers are more like they're they're but smaller and they'll actually just kind of drill in from what I understand of it. They'll drill in and you get itchy and, and then they like die in your skin or some crazy thing. I don't know who knows. It might be chupacabra. They, they might be made up, but I, I, I always understood chiggers to be a thing and you don't yeah. get them. Cause they yeah, I think body. you can, I think you can get Lyme disease or something from ticks if I'm not you mistaken. Can. 
Right, bad news, man. Bad news. Well, it could, yeah. it could be worse because there, there's like uh, there's some like some bug or something like that down in uh, what Central or South America that gets into wasps and it affects their mind and changes how they think. I don't know if that's chiggers, but I would right. uh, that would I would avoid one of those. I would avoid any worm that goes in and starts changing what <laughs> changing your attitudes and the things that you you should be doing. Absolutely. And then getting back to your early childhood, did you yeah. grow up with siblings? Yeah, so I had a, I had a younger sister um, who was always much more bold than I. Uh, she was younger by one year, because uh, like I said, I was I was a shy kid, and she was a loudmouth. She was just I don't I don't know where she came from, and she I love her to death, but man, she just she had no problem. Like we'd go on holiday because people. This was later on when I was uh, we were living in Minnesota because I I was. Uh, grew up in Minnesota for the most part, my formative years, and we were holiday in Wisconsin. So that's what uh, that's what Minnesotans do to party. They go to Wisconsin, and so we would go there. And so if we would, uh, you know, as younger kids, you know, maybe like twelve and thirteen or something like that, uh, we'd go around town or hike around through the woods. And if uh, we came across some local kids, she'd shoot her mouth off. But I was the older one by a year, so now I've got to be the one that has to now deal with this scenario because <laughs> she could run faster than me because I was still a chubby, chubby uh, young man. So she'd, you know, spark her mouth off to four or five kids and start <laughs> hightailing it. And now I'm stuck with this. I'm stuck at nothing there. I'm her making. Thank you for Amazing. That, that is hilarious. But I tell you what, that's where some of the humor came from. Humor became self-defense. Because I wasn't going to beat my way over that scenario, so I had to find some way to be funny. And I learned that, I guess, the hard way, or at least to avoid pain, <laughs> that I ended up uh, learning how to be funny uh, as a defense mechanism. Because <clears throat> because it, it, it's a power shift, right? If, if I'm making somebody laugh and they're trying to lord over me, if I can make them laugh, well, then now I'm in control. I'm in control of the scenario. And so that was uh, that was a heck of a lesson and something that uh, I became entranced with over the years, this, this voodoo that is humor. And I fell in love with stand-up comedy. And, it be, and actually, within my first job was doing stand-up comedy at the, uh, at the age of uh, 18, 19 years old. I did that for a couple of years. Wow, man. Okay, cool, cool, cool. We'll get there. Um, so let me ask you, are your parents still with us? Uh, yes. Uh, my father, the New Zealander, he was living here. He lived here with his, uh, his second wife. Well, he must've lived here for 20 years. Um, my wife and I moved here 11 years ago. And about a year after we moved here, he went back to the United States. <laughs> so I don't know if I should take that personal that he didn't want to be the same country. <laughs> but, uh, so he's uh, back in the Chicago area. Uh, and then uh, my mother is still living uh, in Minnesota, which is weird because- they got trains and cars and buses. You don't have to live there. It's a lovely place. To, let me tell you. But but any Minnesota don't tell you that that January is better yeah. than somewhere else. It's, it's like Winnipeg. Yeah. It's like Winnipeg. These are Winnipeg. There was a time when Winnipeg just a few years ago was colder than the surface of the moon. That's how cold it was. And mm-hmm. I always say to my relatives who still live there, it's like you can you can go. You don't have to stay. I mean, you can come back when it warms up because summer, man, summer is the best day of the year in uh, in Winnipeg. That's my favorite day, summer. The best day of the year. I love it. <laughs> it's just it one funny. day, but it's a nice day. I love it. That is really funny. Um, 
So tell us a little bit about uh, growing up as a child. What was it like for you and your, aside from using humor to avoid getting your butt kicked um, and things that would relate to, um, you know, self-preservation, uh, what was it like? Were you a good kid? Were you studious? Like, what was it uh, that made you who you were as a young person? Well, I was a Canadian, so of course I was a good kid. <laughs> I, I mean, it is, it's part of it, man. I mean, we're just, we're just made that way. There's yeah. something, I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, my, my mother was a big influence and continues to be a big influence on me. But there is something to be said for, and I don't know if it's a Canadian thing or what it is, but I have spoken to other Canadians about it. But I, I will pretty much toe the line on stuff. Um, I'm a, a good person, but not... I don't think from a place where <laughs> where it's like, I want to do good. I just never want somebody to come around and say, hey, you did that thing bad. And I, that's a roundabout way of behaving yourself. And I don't even mean persecution and conversation. I mean, hey, that. I mean, if, if the idea of, of stealing something or doing something wrong, I would be, I would, I would implode if somebody came by later and said, hey, you stole something or you did something wrong. That, to me, would be the worst. It'd be absolutely worse. So I do my best to behave. So it's an odd, odd, it's an odd morality, but in the end, it plays out in this particular way where it seemed to be, for the most part, a pretty good person. Uh, but no, I had a good group of friends, and I remember my mother uh, many years later, because um, you know when I became a parent, um, I have three kids. Uh, when I was asking her about, you know, did you worry about me as a kid or were you worried about that? I did get arrested a couple of times, but, you know, nothing big. You know, never, 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 I never uh, got fully charged for anything, just playing around. But her answer to me was always like, uh, you hung around good people. You hung, the, 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 kid, the friends that you chose were good people. And so I never really worried about you. Um, so that's awesome. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, so so I had pretty good friends, and you know, thankfully uh, for folks like me and potentially you, um, this was pre-internet uh, and pre-social media, and and I can't imagine the pressures that younger people go through today. I, I cannot imagine, and I just wish them uh, just all the love in the world because, man, that has got to be, good golly, that's got to be really difficult. And it was hard enough to navigate when we were kids. Absolutely. But, but knowing that. Like I, there was a bit of bullying that I sort of endured for some time when I was younger because of sort of like where I'd come from and, and how I appeared. Uh, but that ended when I left school. And these days you've got a device that makes sure that never ends if you look at it. So that's okay. got to be amaz amazingly difficult. Yeah. You know what I think about a lot is um, the uh, distraction from human interaction and, uh, you know, interpersonal and emotional development and the normal things that used to happen back in the day when like you needed to call someone on the phone and uh, even the rotary dial, you know, but like you had to call and wait. There wasn't even answering machines at one point. And if you really wanted to know, you could ride your bicycle or drive in a car to somebody's house and knock on the door, you know, and it was like so much anticipation and like it was a different process. But now with social media, especially, I think, which to me is a real deterrent from human interaction. I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but it is what it is. And it's probably not going anywhere until they shut the lights off. But um, it really takes away from um, some of the stuff. And that's what I feel for those young people is they don't know the difference, man. They were born with a device in their hand and they have no clue what it was like to live in the time that we're talking about. I'm 52 years old. How old are you today, Dick? 50, 54. 
Okay, cool. Very good. Very good. And I, and I think you're right. And I think that's probably almost impossible to convey this idea about anticipating something. Because if I want to find a movie, if I want to find a, a song, you or I can find either of those things in 10 seconds. <clears throat> but there, there's something about not having that that available that made it sweeter somehow. And, mm-hmm. and it's impossible for a younger person to maybe understand that because it's like, well, why wouldn't you just want that? But even something is going to sound really moronic. But there was a B-side of an Iron Maiden uh, uh, 45 or something or album mm-hmm. that you could only find in Japan. And it was Bread Fan, uh, which is better oh. known now, right? This song, okay. Bread. But you couldn't, you wouldn't find it. Now, Z-Rock, the AM rock station that played all over the United States, you could call up and ask them to play it, but it was really hard to find. And if you knew somebody that had a copy, they had a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But it was, uh-huh. you know, but you know what I mean? There was, there's a bit of a, there's, there's a romance to that, right? There, yes, it was there is. really, yeah, there's a real, it was really, if you, oh, he, he's heard, oh, maybe go over and listen to it. And, you know, it was kind of a fuzzy copy. So that really sounds cool. Oh, he's got a cleaner copy over here. And there was a real fun to it, or even just the idea. And that's going to digress on just random stuff, but just how everybody would watch a show on, you know, the final episode of MASH or the Cheers was on every Thursday night on Must yeah. TV or Seinfeld even back in those days. Uh, and then the next day, everybody would be talking about that. Those days are kind of over because the first thing out of someone's mouth is, which episode are you up to? <laughs> you know, like, you know, because everyone's streaming. And so that sort of community that we had of just sort of consumption of some of these goofy shows or whatever, that's sort of all kind of gone for the most part, too, as long as they've, but if they've finished it, now we can chat about it. But you got to check to see if they're on episode three or episode seven, or episode 11. All right. And if you binge watch, then, you know, you can get through the whole thing in a day if you really work at it. It's um, the dopamine hits, I think, is the biggest problem. You know, people are so conditioned now by, you know, these little beeps and buzzers and, you know, likes and different things. And that provides a dopamine hit. And um, I think that's part of the problem is that it creates a sense of urgency and, you know, almost anticipation of something that used to take a long time, you know, and it would take a different process. Instead, now you can have, you know, a hundred of those hits in an hour, you know, if you're really rocking social media and stuff. And I think it creates a sense of, um, you know, uh, there's there's just something about it, almost like a sense of entitlement, I would say, you know. There's just something about it that I think perverts the human condition in a way that it wasn't meant to go. And but I don't blame, I don't blame the you, I don't blame the users at all. They they're being manipulated by you know exactly. You know they've been manipulated. I mean all the all the beeps and boops, those sounds, as you know, are are reasonable. Yeah. You know, what's gonna What's gonna get? What's the tone that's gonna get them to grab the phone? What exact sound that's gonna turn them on? And so uh, it's just a manipulation. So like I said. It, it's not a matter. Of, I have empathy, I suppose, for some younger folks because you did miss out back in the day of getting in line for the Van Halen concert. That was a blast to go out there with your your beach chair and your cooler that you would hide under your seat because you're not allowed to have an open bottle out there. <laughs> Minneapolis Metro Center, Center. So, but but even so, but there's a lot of great stuff today too. It's just as yeah. Yeah, man. Um, It's a weird thing. And actually, it's nice, though. See, as an author, I think that you have a very unique and interesting place in the world because you get to create, 
you know, for people's imagination and their uh, intellect and uh, ideas to wrap around. So what you write, you know, it creates a different type of experience. And it's not the same as like reading on a computer, although Kindle and all that stuff, I'm sure, you know, it's just as good um, to read something. But I really think that's neat. You know, you get to kind of capitalize on the old school um, process of creating imagery, you know, yourself. So like when you read, you know, people interpret things differently and whatever, but it's still kind of that organic, you know, beautiful old school process. I really think that's nice actually. What I like to do is I like to create scenarios when I'm writing. Um, you know, I write stuff that I like to write and that was actually the hardest lessons to learn as an author. I, I write stuff that I would want to read, but I also write stuff that you would enjoy a world that you like to be inside. I've actually, I actually read a book or listened to the audio book here in the last week or so and saw a television show. Um, or was it, it was a movie, one of the big ones out there right now. And I was like, why are we not flooded with books and TV and movies that are just miserable? I mean, the, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, I, I, I go to entertainment to escape all of that. I, I don't need, I don't need you to, to remind me how awful parts of the world are. I am well aware of that. So, so the stories that, that I write, I try to make them fun. I mean, not frivolous. Even though it's, you know, the story made, uh, you know, the characters kind of sound like that on occasion. There's a lot, a lot of humanity in the story. In fact, I had a woman um, that ended up sending me an email here just a couple of weeks ago. And she was just, she was very sweet uh, about how she would come home each night. She'd finished the book and she said, uh, the book one. And she said she'd come home every night and uh, and she was going through a real tough time that her father was very sick and she couldn't get to her father because he lived uh, farther away from where she lived and her boss wasn't letting her go and there were difficult things happening at work. But she knew for a couple hours each night she could sit down with these two characters and some of these side characters in this book that I've written. And she said it was my escape and I knew that I could just sort of live in their world for a couple hours each night. And that was my way of getting away from some of the difficulties going on around me. And Todd, that is, I mean, that sounds like a gift for her. That's such a gift for me that she said that. I mean, the idea that it's something I've come created out of my head that has given somebody a bit of a um, you know, a respite, you know, a, a break from the world. I mean, that's amazing that, that I'm allowed to give that to somebody, even if it's just one person. Um, but I have uh, had others say something similar, but that's, so that's an amazing thing to me. And that's what I hope to create. I want to create something that's fun and, you know, and there's, there's tension and there's, you know, there's danger and stuff in these stories, but it should be a ride. You know, the stuff that I write, it's going to be a ride. We're always going to have a bit of fun. Absolutely. Um, and just out of curiosity, your most recent book, is that the only book or do you have some other books that you've written before as well? So the most recent series is Kane. <clears throat> um, and I've just finished uh, the third one and that one's uh, coming up here. It's uh, publishing here in about uh, 10 days. So, uh, And I'm, I'm just starting to write the fourth one. Uh, but I have another series that I'm wrapping up next year as well. Um, but I've written other stuff before that. Um, and it's actually kind of funny. So uh, I, and I'm, I alluded to this earlier, I was in the mindset as an author that I need to read the market and write something that'll sell to that market. And so I wrote two thirds of a trilogy and understanding that's a lot of work <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And the unfortunate part of that, to some extent, because living in Southern California at the moment, uh, at that time, and I had a Hollywood agent sign on to me and this person pitched it to somebody and they optioned the book. 
and um, and then things you know op- options expire that sort of thing. Uh, the and the the folks ended up optioning the book. Circle of Confusion later on ended up making uh, The Walking Dead and some other shows. So they they were really legit. The problem with that did for me was that had convinced me, look, you're on the right path because obviously Hollywood's interested in the stories you're writing. You know, this is going to be something that'll be work for you. But I really found writing those stories for as much as I enjoyed that it was still felt like a lot of work. And it was really only when I started writing stuff that I really liked to write. The center of the gonzo stuff I like to write. Did that happen? And that came from uh, actually inspired by my wife because I'd come home one day and this is some back, this is a uh, 11 years ago now, 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And, um, and I was kind of kvetching. I was sitting there like, why is this this book doing so well? This goofy Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was you know, jealous is what it was. I was jealous. Mm-hmm. Said, How is she doing so well with this book? Supposedly it's terrible. And so I joked to my wife and I said, I said, you know what? We, I should do that thing where they put zombies and everything like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I said, I should make it Fifty Shades of Grey Matter. Because, you know, it's about zombies. And then it, it could somehow be smash those two worlds together. And she said, yeah, write that. I said, no, 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 that's stupid. She goes, no, write that. That one might sell. <laughs> and so it on. And so I wrote it, and I wrote it as a, as like um, a, a bit of a serial, and I put it up on Amazon. I put like the, I did it in five books, but they were short books, and so the whole thing makes one book, but it's basically five parts of one book. And I put one up in August, and I put one up in September, and I was just at that point writing for myself. I really was. I was just this is just fun and goofy and silly, and by December. It became the number one comedy book on Amazon. And I was blown away. There was no promotion. There was no advertising back then, not not like there is today. But enough people were like, this is gonzo. I like this. And it shot up the charts and I couldn't believe it. And it was and it was all it was all because my wife said, just do that thing you like. And if if you like it, you can have a passion to keep doing it. And she was exactly right. And so now I've turned that into, and it's still available on there. Um, but it's I turned that into something called the Swordsman, and and that and it's Gonzo. It's nuts. It's a nut story, but I think people are looking for, especially when times are a little bit challenging. I think people are looking for a fun escape, and and I, and I'll, I'll give something away. The heroes always win in my stories. <laughs> right on. Imagine that. The hero, the heroes will always win in some fashion or another's. But anyways, so then, but but that was embracing a bit of the lunacy, um, and so much of that coming from a, a condition that I have, I think, because my mind wanders all through the day that I've now embraced that, and these are the stories I come up with. Interesting. Wow, man, that's cool. And no drugs are involved either, right? Yeah, just narcolepsy. It's the only thing that uh, is the only thing that's involved is just having narcolepsy. I think that's that's what puts me over the edge. For real, you're a narcoleptic. Yeah. Yeah, I have narcolepsy, uh, so me, which means I'm sleepy all day long. Yeah, and, and honestly, I was hoping. Um, well, I want to get to the other part of this, but but since you mentioned that, what is that experience like? And do you have any advice for anybody that might struggle with that? Uh, I mean, luckily, I I had I've been tired my entire life, or sleepy my entire life, and I just thought that's is this is the way I am. Everybody must be this way. And it wasn't until my ex-wife had gone in because she was convinced that she had narcolepsy and she went and go, spoke to a sleep specialist and I went with her and I was sitting there leaning on the door jam and, uh, and answering questions and filling in blanks wherever I could. And I swear to you, Todd, um, he looked at her and went, I don't think you have narcolepsy. 
Then he turned to me in the door and goes, but I think he might. I went, I went, what? And so something about my demeanor or something, he said, he, I think he might have it. So I ended up going in the following week and uh, they, you know, they put you in the bed and they got the video cameras on you and they put all the suckers on your face and the EKGs and all that. And they take video of you while you're sleeping and they wake you up every couple of, every other hour or so and give you a little quiz, which is funny because I think the entire experience cost me like 250 bucks to go through. But these days you actually, people will pay you to watch you sleep on Twitch streams or YouTube. So I think if I look at it, I think they owe me about $325. (laughs) They all said, watch me for free. So I don't know what that is. But at the end of this year, it came out and they were like, yeah, you have narcolepsy. Uh, And so uh, I do take one drug for that. For a while there, I took some of the, the more sort of speeder type drugs, like the, the Adderalls and stuff like that. But I didn't like the way that, mess with my emotions because as a canadian we don't like being angry it's not in our name oh no and it would make me yeah it would make me it would make me angry uh so yeah so but being i mean any advice i might have is if you think you might have it just go talk to the gp of course but there are a lot of ways to wake up you know there are a lot of ways to feel more awake and few of them involve things like caffeine i still have a bit of caffeine myself but using caffeine is like any other drug you just need more and more of it and you will crash like hard on the other side so if you can limit your caffeine you know it seems maybe counterintuitive but that can actually help you wake up a bit but just getting onto light that's one of the easiest solutions so i'll give you one simple solution if you're really tired go outside in the morning and sit outside uh, on a chair or go up in a tree whatever you need to do for about 10 15 minutes and the circadian rhythms of your body go oh there's a bunch of sunlight out here it means it's time to get up and hunt you know, there's right. a thousand years of evolution there that says we need to be awake now. So rather than being all tucked away in your house and then go outside for about 10, 15 minutes and that should help wake you up. Yeah, no, that's great advice, actually. Um, I know that people struggle in places where there's not a lot of sunshine from seasonal affective disorder and that's always been an issue. So, you know, it, it affects your emotions and everything. Do you, um, just out of curiosity, do you have any emotional impulses or um, deviations from your norm uh, because of narcolepsy or does it not affect your emotions just your yeah i mean the frustration i and i have i just have to be aware of it um there are times where i feel like i'm getting short with people um but i'm really cognizant of that and so and and there was a time uh many years ago where i didn't tell people i had because i felt like such a weakness and so i didn't mm-hmm. reveal that to people and now i'll tell anybody about it and if for no other reason i can say hey listen sorry that's part of that's narcolepsy the other part of it is maybe i'm being kind of a dick i'm sorry but i kind of i kind of bit your head off and, and so but no i i don't want to be that guy i definitely don't want to be somebody who's short with folks um because yeah. that's not that's not fair uh, to other people. And I think that uh, one of the things we do not do with all with all the issues we might have in this world, and there's a lot of positives too, but one thing is we've sort of lost the ability to listen to one another. And I think when I snap, you know, I bite someone's head off or something, that's just me not listening to somebody or not wanting to hear any more of what they got to say and that's not fair. And so I do my best to rein that in, but also bring people in and point out my uh, foilables. Absolutely. That's good, man. That's good. And you know, what comes to mind for me, my uncle had narcolepsy. And so it usually showed up um, when he was uh, sitting in his chair and watching TV. And, you know, we'd be talking and then all of a sudden he's asleep and snoring and all that. And I thought, oh, that seems so pleasant. (laughs) 
it's but you know it could be dangerous while you're driving a car or riding a motorcycle right. or something right and it manifests differently with everybody so where whereas i am tired all the time like like when i'm talking with you i've got to be focused directly on your little photograph there or i would be focused on that object there or there's plenty of times that while i'm speaking with somebody or if i'm in a meeting or something um i have to do something to keep myself active and so you can you can doodle and stuff like that, but if you doodle too much after a while, people start looking at what you're doodling, and that can frighten people. So I do instead. <laughs> I have this deck of deck of cards here, and so sometimes while I'm speaking to people, I'll just sit and shuffle the cards. So one part of my brain is active, and that keeps me awake. So yeah, I've found little tricks and bits uh, to work because um, even being tired all the time or being sleepy all the time, it doesn't mean that if I were to lay down, I could fall asleep because. A lot of times I can't. Wow, that's got to be a tough one. Uh, it, it is what it is. But like I said a moment ago, I actually feel now that it's something that has helped my creativity. Um, and it took a couple of years to get that through my head. But I now realize that, and the example I give to people is, you know that, you know that moment where you're just about to fall asleep? You're lying down in bed, but that state between wake and sleep, and you get some amazing ideas. You think, I got to write that down. That's amazing. And then you wake up the next day and you don't remember it, and you didn't write it down. And that's yeah. that state, that state of mind that you're in. I'm in that 80 to 85% of my day, that hazy, sort of sleepy state. And where that might seem a bit of a negative, I think it also helps me with my creativity. Because I do get some some amazing ideas that come in, and it's not like I say it's time to generate ideas. They just kind of come into me uh, like these little gifts, and and I try and corral those best I can, and, or leave them there in my subconscious. And eventually, a story comes out of it, or a book comes out of it, or a character comes out of it. But I really think that in some way, narcolepsy has led to some of the creativity that I have. Absolutely. And um, just a little FYI, like we're probably going to go over a little bit today, so I don't want you to feel that we need to stop right on time. Um, but I would like to ask you some things that relate to your progress in terms of approaching this uh, life as an author. Like, how did you know and how old were you and what happened to lead you in the direction where you're going? And then maybe we could explore some things that happened along the way, any roadblocks or opportunities that presented themselves and things like that. I think you. I think as an author, you just know you're you're somebody who's got to write. Um, I, I was writing at the age of, you know, the first book I wrote. It was terrible. Uh, I was 17 years old when I wrote it, and uh, uh -huh. and I got a buddy of mine um, who's a New York Times best-selling author, and but he always tells people uh, my first books were published by Kinkos, <laughs> meaning that he just printed them off. Mm. Well, my my first books had been published by Fire because it was that bad. It was terrible. <laughs> it was absolutely awful. But, you know, I continued to have the desire to write. And the reason I actually ended up getting to stand-up comedy was my love of humor. But it wasn't even this idea that I wanted to get on and, and get up and, and be on the microphone. What I wanted to do was, because I used to send out um, I just sent out short stories to these various magazines. And this is pre-internet, right? And so we used to have to send a, a an S-A-S-E, a, -S -S -E, a self-addressed stamped envelope. And yeah. that way, you put a stamp on there and you put that envelope inside your envelope so that basically you're paying for the rejection to come back to you. <laughs> that's, <laughs> how, that's how that process worked. 
And so, uh, and so I got to the point where, and it, it wasn't like today where you submit something and a couple of days later, even, even a week or so later, you might hear something back. This could take even months to hear back. And that's a long mm-hmm. time to wait. Yeah. My thought was a strange thought process. My thought was I could write something in the afternoon, and if I did stand up that night, I would be published because something I've written is now presented to a crowd of people. And so that's, in all honesty, that's what got me into doing stand up comedy, writing stuff in the afternoon and getting up on stage because I was a fan of storytelling and we're. I wasn't writing short stories and reading them on stage. I would use storytelling and craft stories during the day, um, stuff about my life or whatever it might be, get on stage and turn that into material. And then over, you know, months and even years, hone that and to make that better and better and better until I got, you know, half an hour of time and doing stand-up comedy and working with some pretty good names. I only did that for about three or four years uh, until I got in the radio, but I enjoyed that. I, it, I enjoyed the, the creation, uh, the creativity of it. But again, it, it always pointed back to the writing. And I know even today that if I don't write, if I go a couple of days or, or a week without writing, it just darkens my mood. It really does. It's just something I, mm-hmm. I got to do. And if it were something where if I weren't selling books, I'd still write. I mean, there would be, there's, I don't see any reason, I don't see any way my life continues without writing something, creating these stories and these characters. And maybe it's purging. <laughs> maybe it's getting this stuff out of my head and onto the paper. I don't know what it is. Because if they all mm. be in there too long, maybe I'll explode. But yeah. Yeah, I think, maybe. I think if, if, you, if you feel that you need to write, and you should obviously never go into the idea of like, I want to be a millionaire, so I want to be an author. That's not a good goal. But if you feel the mm-hmm. compulsion to write or create music, that's what you should be doing. I really believe that. And it may not be something you can live off of, but it's certainly something that can make you happy. Absolutely. You're so right. And that reminds me, um, I need to get back to my music. I used to spend tons of time doing that. And I created an album and a bunch of remixes and some originals and then did work with some friends and things like that. But I've been, uh, I lost touch with my creative juices like that. And you're uh, inspiring me to want to get back to those. Man, so they're right there. Of- they're right there waiting for you, brother. Because when you, yeah. do, you, when you get into that zone, when things are flowing, and when you feel that coursing through you, man, oh my God, there's nothing that feels like it. When you're right. It, when your fingers can't move fast enough and you feel that like you just touch the face of God. I mean, it's just this, activity. it's so great. And it's waiting for you. You just got to get back into it, man. You just got to get, you got to open the door for it. It's knocking. Yeah, right on, brother. You're exactly right, man. Um, so speaking of knocking on doors, you went from writing to stand-up comedy to radio. What was yep. uh, your life like in radio? And then let's get back to authorship, of course. But Yeah, um, I- Tell me I love radio. Radio, radio is is in a lot of ways like writing, uh, because it's a <clears throat> where like I, I did I just finished wrapped up uh, twenty years in television uh, producing, but and I never loved television producing, and I can be free to admit that now I don't have to work for those people anymore. I never loved it. You know, it was a real here's our product presenting. Radio is always a little bit like uh, you know a little like the Toddcast. It's normally one person, so it's my voice talking to you. You are listening to me and we're connecting and it may not feel like that I, I'm part of this or that we're together, but we are. In fact, when people would come to me at remote broadcast, if I was some somewhere, people would speak to me as if we're, we're, we're coming through halfway through the conversation because they've been listening to me for 
weeks and months or even years in some cases, and they knew me. And so we would have these conversations like we were good friends. And so it's a real connection. And it's the same thing with writing. You know, writing is the same way. Two people don't read a book together. It's one-on-one. So I think there's a lot of parallels with it. But I loved radio for that that idea and creating this sort of, you know, like the idea of me flipping the cards a moment ago, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, just creating a bit of a visual just through audio or creating, uh, we used to call it theater of the mind uh, back in the radio days, uh, just just speaking to somebody, getting right into their head, taking them away for a couple of hours and just having a bit of fun. And I just, I, I loved it. I got a chance to work in uh, Orlando and Pensacola in El Dorado Springs, Missouri, where he did a country radio station. I was the morning guy. And so country radio station, you wake people up. Of course, your name is Roosters. My name is Rooster in El Dorado Springs, Missouri. And then I did SoCal and then I did uh, Atlanta, where we're for rock station in Atlanta. And I had a great time. I loved radio. It was fantastic. That is amazing. And then while you were in radio, did you continue writing or yeah. how did you get back to that? Yeah, I did, in fact. And so I mentioned earlier a little bit about this thing where I'd gotten optioned. Well, um, so I ended up, it, that just went terrible. Um, but the option expired and the agent that I had, he, he was just a jerk. And and you're so excited to get an agent, right? And then when you finally do get an agent, you really got to find the right one. It's like getting married. It really is. You're so desperate to find an agent, you'll take any of them. And I should just should have just not picked this guy at all because he just didn't work for me. He was a jerk. Anyways, so, so so what happened was I'm in radio and I'm working in Southern California and my buddy is working for uh, working as a traffic guy for a guy who's like the number one um, uh, host in Los Angeles, a country radio station of all things. He's a huge host, but he's producing a new television show. Now that television show hits the air. I decide, listen, I've got a bit of a connection. I'll write a script. And so I give it to my buddy, the traffic guy. Hey, can you give this to that dude? And so the guy go puts, throws his hands up when my buddy goes, hand it to him, a manila envelope, says, no, 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 I can't touch that. It's got to go through an agent. And so I found this agent in Los Angeles, and I'll never forget the name of it, Black Box Entertainment. I don't know why, maybe because he was high in the phone book. I contacted him. I said, hey, listen, I've got this guy, who, the guy named Peter that will read this, but it's got to go through an agent. And he's like, okay, fine. Yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, he had no, he had nothing in his head that uh, thinking that this was going to work out. And so he ends up giving it to them. And then a couple of days later, he calls me up. He goes, Dick, uh, they really like the script. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, yeah, I can't believe it. It's like, what do you mean you can't believe it? Why are you supposed to be my son? No, no, no. You're supposed to be my son. He goes, yeah, they, I think I want to buy it. It's like, can you not be so stunned? This is, you know, you're making me feel bad yeah. now. You didn't even read it. You just handed it over. You're going to get a big commission. You didn't do a damn thing. And so for a couple of hours, I was just like floating. It's like, I'm just waiting for the phone to ring. And then the phone rings. He calls up. He says, hey, Dick, they canceled the show. And so, <laughs> so that was my experience. So I got two two gutter balls uh, the first time out, uh, and so that kind of put me off. But I continued the point of what I'm saying, and that very long answer was to say I always was writing all the way through, be it short stories or books or or any of that. And it was really only until when my wife turned around and said, aside from that that teleplay uh, for that television show, it was quite funny. It was really when my wife said, just write something that you want to write. You know, go do that funny thing you do. Because everything I'd written before then was kind of serious, because I thought that's what the market wanted. But the moment I sort of just was true to myself and wrote something I wanted to write is when everything took off. Wow, man. 
That is amazing. Um, gosh, you're really um, talking about destiny, honestly. It sounds like this is completely what you were born to do, man. I feel like it, hopefully. Hopefully. But, you know, and, and the joy that I get, as I've said before, the, the, the interaction. Now, we were kind of kvetching, you and I were kind of talking about, back in the day, we had it so good. Now, the one great thing is some of that one-on-one interaction uh, these days and the positive interaction of social media. And I've met so many people via the books and social media is the only way, for the most part, we'd get contacted either through email or Facebook Instagram, and I've met hundreds of people, and uh, dozens of them I still I almost correspond with, you know, at least once a month, some lovely, amazing people. Uh, and all that came from just the fact that we have these systems now, which are challenging uh, social media, but they also do sometimes provide a conduit for people to connect. And so I am happy about that. And it's been a really lovely thing in my life. That's really cool. And do those things, I mean, just a side note, do they turn into personal connections or is it always just online? Uh, it's, I live in New Zealand, so personal connection. <laughs> right. Although I did, Neil came out. Uh, Neil, uh, one of my early readers, he ended up uh, taking a trip where he and his wife came to New Zealand and uh, Australia and I, I met them for lunch. So yeah. So yeah, not tales. Make the open invitation. We've got a guest room. So if so if uh, if you're a reader of one of the books, you send me a note. And you're coming out to New Zealand. Shoot me a note. We got a guest room. Come back, crash for a night. We'll talk about stuff. I'm always up for it. That's awesome, man. That is really awesome. What a cool thing. Um, so let me ask you: Were there any obstacles along your path that uh, got in your way, and how did you overcome them? Uh, I mean. I would say narcolepsy in some ways, but as I said, I worked through that. The biggest obstacle I had was every job I took that wasn't necessarily writing got bigger and bigger. So uh, so when I did stand-up comedy, my work day was 45 minutes. That's a great work day. That's a work day anybody would love, 45-minute work day. Um, and then when I did radio, it was three hours or four hours, right? And then when I got into television... It was initially probably like nine. Uh, this last job that I just wrapped up here a couple of weeks ago, producing television here in New Zealand, that was 12 hours a day. That was 60 hours a week. And so increasingly, that other thing was chewing up more and more of my time. And the only way that I could make that work, and again, I guess in some way kind of credit the narcolepsy and insomnia, was um, I would write before work. And so my workday started at 7.30 in the morning and ended at 7.30, but I was up and out of bed by 3.30, 3.45 to write. And that's what I did this past year, and I wrote three books that way. So the obstacle was <laughs> working 60 hours a week, and the only way I could make it work doing something that I knew I wanted to do was, you know what, I could get another hour or two lying here in bed or could get my butt up, sit down up on the computer and write. And I just had to force myself to do that. And I just, I, you know, I'm, I, I took a look at what mattered to me. And what mattered to me the most was not to keep doing television for the next 10 years or whatever, however long I'd be and retire. That would have been awful. I wanted to be doing this. And the only way to do this was to spend two years of those early morning wake-ups. I tell you what, though, Todd, uh, I, I quit that. Uh, basically, that job ended. They canceled our show after seven years. Uh, but that happened two weeks ago. This morning, I was up at 4.30. Now, now I've, I've, I don't know. I've corrupted myself. Now I can't I can't sleep past 4.30 anymore. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And um, would you say that uh, along the way, there was any luck involved? Or was oh, yeah. It all just... yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it is, man. It, I mean, that's the thing. Um, one of 
one of my favorite conversations I had was, and this is, I guess, a bit of a brag. Uh, back when I was in in rock radio, I got a chance to speak to a lot of big sort of rock artists like the Aussies and all these people, Kiss and all this. Yeah. I spoke to I spoke to Gene Simmons and Kiss more than I spoke to my father for about seven years. I got tired really? of talking. Yeah, I got tired of talking. To him. <laughs> That's so amazing. Uh, but so, but so I was speaking with uh, so uh, Stephen Tyler had come into Atlanta and they were doing a show, and it was Stephen Tyler and and Tom uh, the drummer. <clears throat> and one of the cool things that Stephen Tyler said, he said, "We weren't the best band to come out of Boston. We weren't even the best in. We weren't even the top thirty to come out of Boston. We just hit at the right time, and we just had a lot of luck. And and for somebody as monstrous as like Aerosmith, and as you know, the stamp that they have on rock radio, uh, or rock music in general, and to this day, he's still hanging around. You know." It's it's the sort of thing we, they really just humble you and realize how much that matters. And you hear stories all the time about people saying like, "Oh, this happened, then so and so happened to hear my audition tape, or I happened to bump it, bump into so and so when I was at, uh, I, I met uh, so and so's aunt when I was at the restaurant, and she recommended me, whatever it might be." Yeah, it does. It takes a moment of luck, but I do also believe you got to make your luck. I do believe you got to put yourself out there. And there's nothing to say right now, Todd, that there might be somebody listening to this right now, sits down with uh, somebody working over at, uh, at Netflix or Apple, that their kid or that their their wife is listening to the Toddcast show, and suddenly they're hearing me talk about this, uh, this story that I've written, and that might be that bit of luck. But the only way that luck happens is if I put myself out there and speak to people. Uh, you can't just sit at home with the doors closed and hope luck is going to happen. You can. You get yourself an online lottery ticket, but I do believe that you got to help. You got to goose it in some way, and that luck will come your way. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I know we're getting close to what would be the hour. Are you good to go over a little bit? Yeah, hey, was whatever you want to do, brother. I'm here. Awesome, man. And um, I want to build up here. I've got a couple more questions about your path. And then I would like to talk about the book that's coming out on December 26th. Um, the way it's going to work out actually is, um, I, you know, it's crazy how things work, Dick. Um, but I actually had a guest on my calendar that didn't show. And there was a, there happens to be a spot in my in my schedule, all my shows are covered until February right now. So right. I'm all booked up and all the shows are recorded, but I am going to publish your show next week uh, so that it, it can help with your book uh, release. Oh, I so, appreciate that. I appreciate um, that very much. Yeah. And I appreciate you actually. You're really uh, very inspiring and you're making me laugh a lot. So, you know, yeah, I, I want to take good care of you, buddy. Um, oh, I appreciate that. Yep. Hey, my pleasure. Um, but what I'd like to know is, um, can you speak to maybe the process a little bit of a time where you doubted yourself? Is there ever a time when you doubted yourself? And how did you get through that? Yeah, I, I think with any creator, you have that um, you have that imposter syndrome, and I have it almost every time I start a new book. <laughs> I, when I start writing a new project, I just go like, I'm, I can't do this. I'm terrible at this. It, it just, it comes with that. I almost put it in my calendar. Um, but just in general, I think that we all doubt ourselves. And I guess the two ways you end up handling that is one is that can sort of cloud over you and take over you. And the other way is you find a way to push through it. There's a lot to be said with, um, like I used to tell some folks um, when they were starting with stand up and they were worried about going up and performing. 
And I always tell them, I said, like, it's okay for you to doubt yourself. Just never show that doubt on stage because the audience mm-hmm. is there. The audience is there and they want they want you to succeed. So the irony of that is if you come out, not arrogant, you come out confident that people will look at you and go like, well, that person looks like that. They know what they're doing. They must be very good at this. That, then they're confident in your ability to do it. And you know what that does to you? That gives you confidence. <laughs> so you right. come up with this sort of this sort of not bravado, but a confidence that you can pull this off, and it does in a way start to seep back at you. So I think that there is some element to faking it till you make it, and and there is something to be said for if you feel so that you've got something to say, or if you have a particular ability, and maybe it's not perfect yet, or you're still got to hone that. Just come in there like you own the world a bit, or at least you're a small part of that world, and that does start to become true. I feel that way. Absolutely. Yeah, that's funny. While you were saying it, I was just going to ask you, do you believe in the the term fake it till you make it? Because that's always been something I believe in. A hundred percent. I mean, I mean, even uh, was it uh, Carrie Fisher was talking about that? Um, you know, there's some quote that went around run around the time of, of her death just a few years ago uh, about how smart that she was. You know, she's known as this Princess Leia, but she was brilliant. She was a brilliant writer. And she talked about it all the time, you know, going into scenarios where she was way out of her depth. But just going in there and sort of like, you know, as much as you can, no one going into a new gig or a new job or, or any of that stuff, no one knows everything they need to know. Just kind of go in there with as much confidence as you can. You'll be surprised how you pick it up and that confidence can pay off in the end. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And um, is there anything else related to your path in uh, achieving your success that you might like to share? Just a random, random question. I think it's just, you know, the idea of lifting other people up. Um, and I've found that around me quite a bit. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a dreadful story going on right now that I don't want to get into, but uh, there's a young author, a debut author, who felt as though the only way that their book could do well was by trashing other books in the same genre. And this is somebody who is brand new but then insecurity got at them. I don't know what it was, but tragically, because of that, they've now lost their book deal. So this is somebody who who felt that the way they could succeed was by trying to take out some other competition. It's called review bombing. And in the end, this person now has lost their book deal. And that's horrible. But so why I mention that is because I believe exactly the opposite is true. As much as you can support other people, lift other people up, I mean, and I don't mean in the sense that you always benefit from that, but you do get a benefit, you know, like like in television, when we'd bring people in who didn't really know so much about how to produce television or storytelling, it was it was so great to help those people along because they're floundering. Those are the people we're talking about. You come in here thinking you're an imposter. I don't deserve to be here. And I'd come and say, yeah, you got it. You got the ability. You got the talent. We can make this work and lifting them up and how much they appreciated that and watching them grow and get better. And knowing that you were some part of that, there's a selfish part of that because I really got, I got jazzed when I see them succeed. And when I see young producers I work with are now moving in supervising producer positions or even EP slots, you know, that's, that's really great for me to see. So I think it's as we sort of strive and try and get ahead, I really think that we don't do like that, that other individual did and they made an error and hopefully they've learned from that. But the idea of supporting others and lifting others up. It's such a great joy. And if we all did that, could you imagine what the world would be like? What an amazing world this would be. And I'm- I dream of that. Yeah, and you do it just purely uh, because 
you know, you're trying to be a good person and this is altruism in a very selfish way. It really feels nice. It really feels nice mm-hmm. to support other people. You're exactly right. Hey man. Um, so I got a couple of weird questions for you. Do it. What's your greatest fear? Uh, spiders. <laughs> Me too. Dude, they're the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> I, I was at the gym today and I saw a spider on, my, on the outside the window. And, oh, no. And I was just like, I'm looking at it. And this is New Zealand. So it's not, there's one spider that's kind of poisonous called a white tail. And it's Australian. Of course it is, right? Because we have nothing this day yeah. here. So then, so this Aussie comes over. This Aussie spider goes, oh, but you wrote in yes, I will. And so I don't know what. That's the worst accent of all time. So the spider's on outside of my window. I'm like, oh, no, I can't get out of the car. <laughs> so so I go and I park at the gym. And this sounds so lame. I, I get out through, through the passenger side because that side's got the spider on it. And so I come around as I'm walking in. I look and I can't see the spider anymore. And that should make me feel better, maybe, because I don't want to see it because they're ugly. But now I don't know where it is. And so I was like, mm-hmm. should I walk home? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. honestly, I, I I'm right there. I'm right there with you, and it doesn't have to be very big. But I I'm terrified. As they're horrifying. Yeah, they're horrifying. Absolutely, they're they're uh, the fruits of the devil. They're horrifying. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, when God was making things, He's like, oh, here's something funny I can throw in the mix, uh, and scare the humans half to death for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're um, they they take care of bugs, but man, I, we're not in love. We're not in love. Yeah. How about a couple of things that most people might not know about you? Uh, what's your favorite food? Uh, my favorite food, anything my wife makes, because she's uh, she's sitting in the room. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> you know what I love? I, I tell you what I miss, um, and I would say it's my favorite food. But I miss this because I'm nuts. I miss going to Taco Bell and just getting a, just a bean burrito. We've got Taco mm-hmm. Bell here, but there's something about about like. Just, just sloppy Mexican food. I miss. God, I love sloppy Mexican. I like when you go to the Mexican food, Mexican food restaurant. Same thing with Cajun. When we were down in New Orleans, I want my Cajun food to be made by a guy who's hungover and smoking a cigarette and the same shirt he's been wearing for a week with a giant vent mm-hmm. with black stuff coming out the sides. That's the kind of that's what that's the gumbo that I want. You know, that's the yeah, yeah. And here, everything is is it's imported and so. So everything is is like like they're bean burritos for goodness sakes. I actually went to a Taco Bell because it's newer here, and it had rice and like whole beans and all these other things. Like, can I just get just how they make it <laughs> in mm-hmm. in the U.S.? Can you just make it awful and just like with beans and lard or whatever is in there? It would be a cheese and some fake onions. Can you just do that? And no, no. And it's, it's the same thing with the Cajun food here. It's just they they try too hard to make it really great, make it better. Just just let it be the way it is. So. I, I miss that. I miss the sloppy. If if we had a Mexican restaurant here that had nice, delightfully sloppy um, food, I would love that. So only thing I really miss. Well, if you ever come to Las Vegas, that's where I live, and we have tons of sloppy Mexican places here. I love it. You know, it's Albertos, Alibertos, Aribertos, Elbertos, like every type of Berto that you can think of. Man, like they've got it locked down and. There's this place called Don Tortacos or Don Tortaco, <laughs> and it's really good, man. Dude, you're making really, me feel really good. Oh, right? I love uh, it. This place is, we're loaded with Mexican food around here, and it's great, you know? And, it is. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. What, 
what's a guilty pleasure that you can share with us? That might uh, be a little I, ambiguous to people. A guilty pleasure. I do like the occasional rom-com. I will watch them on occasion. And, okay. And, you know, and that's not as common for maybe a, a guy who writes thrillers or a motorcycle or whatever it might be. But I, <laughs> every now and then my wife will put one on and like, they're just some of them are cleverly written, like the Noah Ephrons and stuff like that. They're really cleverly written, and so I can sit and cross my arms and be kind of ah, rah, rah, when we watch something else. But I kind of do enjoy them. I love actually what an amazing movie that is. That's a fantastic movie, and I like I said, not a lot of guys that ride a motorcycle might say that, but I, every now and then I do like a good rod gum. So that's that's my guilty pleasure. Very cool. And you mentioned riding a motorcycle. What do you ride? Uh, so right now I'm riding a, it's a Honda, it's a Honda Shadow 800 and it's the American edition. So it's certain, it's, it, it looks like a Harley in a way. It's got the same sort of color mm-hmm. as a Harley without the, the insane price tag. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, man, and I like that. And it's dangerous to, to, to ride it in, in Auckland. It's finer on the rest of the country, but Auckland drivers, they, they're not mean, they just don't pay attention. And so you got to really, really pay attention while you're on the road. But yeah, no, it's great. I, I dig riding. Very cool, man. And uh, what inspires you the most, just generally speaking, or if you can pick any area that you'd like to share? Uh, what inspires you? I, I mean, I, I think it, it would just be, in part, is going to be some of the narcolepsy and then just being quiet um, letting those moments come in, but it's just everyday life. You know, it's a thing if, uh, you know, like other writers, you know, or even musicians, if you're looking to write, um, it's the same thing you should say about, uh, being in radio is that you can't just stay home, go out and do stuff. I'm inspired by mm-hmm. just going out of doors. And a lot of times that's my wife dragging me out of the house because I'm a bit of a homebody. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of a, an introvert. And it was, mm-hmm. it was her taking me and her father one year ago, almost to the day, probably, uh, she took us to a car show. And I and I never would have gone to a car show on my own because there's people there. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, but we went to this we went to this car show and that actually if if you read the became the book, it starts out at a car show. And the car show I describe is the car show that I went to. So so my wife helps out, gets my ass out of the door every now and then. And that does, that inspired mm-hmm. stuff that it gets into my book um, like that, which is pretty amazing. Very cool. And when you write, um, it sounds like you're really fortunate to have that uh, better half working with you there. Yeah. How much of um, how much of your work goes through her? And like, I'm sure that she's a sounding board, but how does that relationship work in terms of your creative prowess? She doesn't read my my books. She won't read my books. She <laughs> she refuses to read my books. Uh, she says to me that when when I read your book, because she lives with me and hears me all the time, obviously, when I read your book, it's like I can hear your voice. So for some reason, that's a negative. <laughs> I guess she's tired of hearing my voice. And so oh, no. Would she, but really what it comes down to is it takes her out of the story, right? So the idea is that if mm-hmm. she's reading something from uh, Amelta's perspective or Kane's perspective, when I'm writing something and then she sees, uh, when she sees what's written on a page, she 
she might remember me talking about that particular scene or she knows my style and cadence and it doesn't feel like she's reading a fiction story or the voice of Imelda Kane. It feels like she's just hearing me talk. And so that's difficult to, to, that's difficult to uh, enjoy the fiction in that particular way. But, you know, we were talking earlier about this thing with uh, the audiobook. She will listen to the audiobook because now she's got these two actors yeah. that are going to be acting this out. And so they will take my voice. So we'll see how that goes. And I think it's going to be phenomenal. And it'll be it'll probably be the first book of mine she's ever finished. So I'm looking forward to see what she thinks. <laughs> That's really funny. And I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous probably, but does she have any interest in writing or is she just, uh, you know, like, like that you do that? Uh, no, I think she, she's she got a talent for herself. She was in PR for a time, so she will take a look. And I do run stuff by her all the time. Um, um, I, any like I made a short video today, some promotional video, and I showed it to her. So I, I use her as a sounding board all the time. Her opinion, um, and I'm very lucky that way, her opinion means the world to me. And there's very few people I can say their opinions matter too much to me in general. But when it comes to my wife, that opinion matters to me a lot. So anything I do create, especially something when I come into like, is this any good? I will run it by her. Or like new story ideas for sure. When I came up with the idea for Kane, I, I said, is this a good idea? And she supported it, you know. Uh, and she she's she's uh, she's Texas born, grew up in Alabama. So she ain't afraid to tell me if something blows. And so, or at least. No, no, she won't. No, or her opinion of it. So I appreciate that. I'm That's awesome. And speaking of which, let's give her a little bit of love here. How long have you been married? We've been married for 11 years. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. And uh, how did you meet? Uh, so we met many years ago. Oh, not many. We met probably 22 years ago. Uh, and we wow. friends for years and I was going through a divorce and, and she ended up emailing me out of the blue, which was nuts. Cause I hadn't heard from her in a couple of years. You talk about luck, luck or destiny, but she emailed me and, and I said, Hey, listen, I'm going through a divorce. And she said, I'm thinking I'm almost there too. And we ended up getting together. So that was uh, really, yeah, it was a real turn of fate and it really worked out really well. I'm very lucky. That's, that's beautiful. Um, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but I am kind of curious, what was it like converting a friendship to a romance? What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, the advantage we had is most of our friendship was over email. And so when we actually got to meet in person a little bit, more, like I met her a couple of times, I used to do uh, radio gigs in Mobile, and so she was one of the promoters. And so um, I'd only met her a couple of times back in those days. And so over the years after that, it was just more of an email relationship, right? How are you doing? How are things going? How's your, how's your boy doing? This sort of thing, right? And so when we actually met in person then and when she when we said hey listen you know we've gotten real over really well it's been actually a year or two since we've emailed but we've gotten over, we got uh, we got along really really well when we met in person it was almost like meeting somebody new because this wasn't words on a page this is sort of the flesh this is somebody behind it and so this was a different part of this person and so I guess it was easy, for lack of a better expression, to be able to move into a different phase of the relationship because it had grown from just being words on the page. Wow, that's really cool, man. And it was a real natural process, I take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we just had, we had similar senses of humor. And, uh, you know, uh, and I think that sort of, that's the sort of thing that really helped build our relationship in the first place. 
Absolutely. That is amazing. Very cool. Good for you, man. Thank you. Very, very cool. And uh, where, like, where were you when you first met? Like, uh, over there or over here? No, no. It was, uh, it was on the Gulf Coast when we first met. I was doing, uh, I was working at TK101, the rock station in, uh, in Pensacola. Mm-hmm. And we'd go over there and we're, um, and I'd do a club every Friday night. Me and my blind stunt guy would go over there and do a, uh, a club gig on Fridays. Fun. That's amazing. Yeah, Blind Mike. Very, very cool. Blind Mike, how funny. He was really blind and did stunts. Is yeah, that his thing? he was. He was great, man. He'd do anything. He was such a good cat. In fact, if you take a look at my profile photo, like on, uh, like if you see, look at Amazon or not on, not on my website, but on almost everywhere, my profile mm-hmm. photo is like from 22 years ago or so. And the reason isn't just because I'm younger, but Blind Mike took that photograph because he was a blind guy that liked to take photos. But he would always take photos of the butts and bodies of girls with. <laughs> and so if you take a look at that photo, you can almost see my expression. And I probably had just said, Mike, what are you doing? And I leaned in front of somebody walking by. I leaned in front between me and the person walking by so you couldn't do a butt shot on that person. And you can see an elbow in the background, I think on that photo, but the elbow of the person in the background is my wife. Oh, my now wife. Oh, wow. So the photograph taken by one of my best friends, a blind guy that liked to take photographs, and it's a photographic evidence of the first time that I don't even know if I'd met her at that point. But we identified her in the photo um, some years later. So it's 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 everything for me. It's an old friend that I miss very much. She's passed since, and it's the first wow. photo of my wife, even if it's just an elbow that I've ever had. Yeah, that's really beautiful, man. Very very cool. So uh, I don't want to keep people too terribly long, but I love this. This is such a natural flow, and you're such an awesome guest, man. You're making it too easy for me, brother. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm really thoroughly enjoying your conversation. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book that's coming out because I want to help you promote it. Um, you have a book coming out on the 26th of December here in 2023. Is that right? Yeah, it's the third book in the series. Now, I'll give you sort of the short version uh, of what Cain is. And keep in mind, a lot of this comes <laughs> born of the mind of an archaeoleptic. But Cain is basically, it's a wolf who gets bitten by this infected man and then he turns into a human. But when he steps into the moonlight, um, he becomes an animal again, right? Um, he hires this former criminal, uh, a one-time getaway driver named uh, Amelda, to drive for him because as a wolf, he hasn't worked out how to drive, even though he's a human now. Um, so, so they they partner together because now he's a six foot seven French Canadian human, except when he goes through the moonlight. When he goes in the moonlight, he changes, and he's on this quest to search for this guy who bit him because he wants to find the secret. Find out why that happens. Who can turn back into a wolf? And the one sort of nuance in this. So then, I, I, as I was writing this, you know, he turns to what you would call a werewolf, right? When the full moon's out, and maybe selfishly as an author, I was saying to myself, "Well, I don't want to wait twenty-eight days to have fun with this transition. I don't. I don't wait the whole time. So why is it just the full moon? What if it was?" You know, a half moon or quarter moon. It's still moonlight. Why wouldn't he be affected by that? And so I thought, well, maybe he is. So what if, okay, let's say a full moon, he becomes like a full-on werewolf. Why would he be a half moon or a quarter moon? And basically a, a, a lesser sort of wolf is a dog. 
So when it's like a sliver of a moon, he turns into a little lapdog. When it turns into a half moon, he turns into a pug. <laughs> when he turns into like a three-quarter moon, mm-hmm. uh, he's like a Rottweiler. And so throughout the story, he turns to these various kinds of dogs and, and how that changes his personality and character as he gets bigger and bigger towards when he finally becomes the wolfware. Uh, near the end of the story, so so it's a it's a real fun story because you get to see humans through the eyes of a guy that used to be a wolf, and so he's only at the time of the story's beginning in the first book in Cain, um, he's only been a human for years, so his observations about humans are kind of childlike in a way, but there's some truth to that too. There's a very simple sort of style to it, but apparently people really find that stuff funny. Uh, and it's done very well for itself. And I get uh, I get some amazing real co- correspondence from uh, from readers that really seem to love it. Very cool. And what's it like uh, writing a series of books as you have uh, linking one to the other? I assume that there is an ongoing story between all of them that kind of flows from one to the next. What's yeah. that experience like? Yeah, it, it's been it's been really fun, and and I'm what's called a discovery writer. If you want to be posh about it, or just a pantser, mm-hmm. so I don't really plan a lot of stuff out. When I go into a book, I I sort of know how it might end. In the third book, I didn't know how it was going to end. I didn't even know what it was going to be like in the middle. <laughs> I barely knew how it was going to start. And of all things, we we're talking earlier about this sort of connection that I've been really fortunate to have with some from readers is that every now and then I get uh, contacted by readers groups. And so like a group of folks might read the book together and they want me to speak to them. And so I speak to them over Zoom. And so I spoke to this these folks up in the UK and I don't remember where this one particular woman was from. I always say New Brighton, I think, because I like the sound of it. She might have said New Brighton, I don't know. But so that entire morning, I'd sort of been beating my head against a wall. I was writing um, the third Kane book, but I was just like stuck and I didn't know where I was going to go with a certain part of it. And uh, now I've got to, now I'm going to speak to these folks in the UK. And so I sat down, I fired up my Zoom and the woman said, you know what? I really can't wait to find out. I can't wait to find out what it was like that year that Cain was raised by that French-Canadian couple because that's what happened. After he turns from wolf into this teenage boy, basically, he spends the next year with this French-Canadian couple and grows into the six-foot-seven French-Canadian himself. And so she was really fascinated what that what that year was like for him. And I said, well, yeah, of course, that is exactly what I'm doing. In it's so funny. That's... Exactly. What one is what is happening, and so, what an amazing sort of moment. I I needed that bit of inspiration. She told me what was really in her heart, what she wanted to hear, and it just those moments came together. And and I don't know, maybe maybe fifteen years ago, I wouldn't have been so open to somebody else's sort of I don't know input or or inspiration. But the moment she said that, I was like, well, of course, that's where it should go. And so, there's a portion of this book that we flash back to Kane's past. So that's really fun. That's, and it was really really fun to do, uh, to kind of you know as he starts to learn how to be human and how to explore. That has been a real gas. And that book comes out that on the on the 26th of December. But read Very the first. Cool. first. You, you want to read the, the first ones through. And I mean, the one thing about the series is you really, I mean, you could pick up the third one, but you'll want to go through one and two before you get to the third one, to be honest. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, will there be other books in the series? Yep. I had initially sort of thought that maybe this would be three book series and Podium is right now working on the first three books for audiobooks, the first one coming out in, in January. Uh, but at the end of this book, like I was talking before about characters sort of dictating where things go, uh, something happened and Kane had said something and now book four, they need to cross the border again. Uh, book two, they ended up going up to uh, up to Canada, and this time they're going to go south of the border. So, and that was something, you know, just letting the subconscious work on that and put it in there. And uh, now I'm following their lead, and so the I've just started writing that now, the fourth book, which will be coming out uh, sometime early next year. And so, I, there's probably going to be five. I can't imagine be more than that, but I I said that before. <laughs> if they want to do more, if the characters are up for doing more than that, then that's what's going to happen. So for people that want to engage in this wonderful reading that you are providing to the world, where would they go to find these books? You can find any of them on Amazon. Um, the e-books are, are on Amazon now, books one, two, and the third one comes out December 26, as you mentioned. And then the audiobook, which I'm really stoked about, uh, the first one comes out on January 16th. You can also find that on Amazon. If you're a paper book reader, a paperback book reader, you can find those in uh, Walmart and Barnes & Noble. You may have to go in and, and order that from them. Uh, they may not be on the shelves. It'd be great if they would put them on the shelves. Uh, but ask them and they should be able to get that for you. Um, otherwise, just go to my website. Uh, uh, just dickwybrow.com. You can find everything there. And it's dickwybrow, W-Y-B-R-O-W.com. Right? Yes, sir. That's okay. the one. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, let me ask you, Dick, um, was there anything that we might have missed today that might be on your heart or in your mind that you might like to share? Um, I think the one thing that I... I I always try to encourage people because I've talked a lot about talking. <laughs> I talked a lot about, you know, obviously stand-up comedy and, 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 and doing radio. And that's a lot of like me and you and I talking. But I think we've, and I alluded to this a bit before, I think we've really lost listening to each other. And I think that matters so much <clears throat> when somebody is, is telling you what matters to them. As much as I could say, it's so important just to listen to what they're saying rather than waiting for their lips to stop moving so you can get your thing in. And I tell you what, you go to a party or something like that, and if you just listen to what somebody says, responds to what they're saying, instead of trying to get your thing in, you might say a dozen words, that person's going to walk away and go, that's one of the best conversations I've ever had. <laughs> you know, it's it's just that we don't listen to each other as much anymore. And 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 listening to somebody and hearing their story, what matters to them, it, it, it not only makes them feel great, but it makes you feel great too, because that does lift their spirit a lot. And that's infectious. And I think that for as much as we've been talking about talking, I think we need to do a lot more listening to people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's also an expression of love to do that, you know, I think. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, and respect and consideration and all that. But we do get kind of wrapped up, and I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. But oh, we all are, brother. We all are. I am too. I try, you know, I say that, and I, I do my best to follow it. But every time I remember that, it pays off in spades. Absolutely. Like, I mean, what if you weren't listening when that uh, nice uh, reader gave you the idea that was the impetus for your for your whole book? You know what I mean? It's like, man. I mean, Absolutely. you just never know. That is amazing. That, that came from listening to, you know, just open myself up and listen to somebody's story and what mattered to them. Absolutely. That is really great. Wow. I really hate to end this. I'd like this to go on forever, but I guess it's time that we should wrap things up. Is there anything else that you might like to share before we uh, go today? 
No, I really enjoyed my time with you today, Todd, and I wish you the best with the show and everything else. It's been a really, really fun time, um, and thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Dick Wybrow, thank you for being on the Toddcast show. It means a lot, and I hope to have you back again. I'd like to do a part two maybe in the future if you'd care to. Yeah, fantastic. I'd love that. That would be awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show, and you have a great night. You too. Thank you for tuning in to the Toddcast show. If you found today's episode helpful and meaningful, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on what's next. Remember that the Toddcast show is all about community and connection. So follow the podcast on your preferred social platform to keep updated on everything I've got in store. Also check out toddcastshow.com to find out more and stay connected with me, Todd Mira. Be sure to tell your friends and family about the Toddcast show so the podcast family can continue to grow and share on an international level. See you over on the next episode. Hi, I'm Todd Mira, host of the Toddcast show, and I want to share something personal with you today. Throughout my own life, I've struggled with issues I didn't even realize I had. Things like depression, past trauma, PTSD, and feeling disconnected from the people I loved the most. It took me hitting rock bottom to realize I couldn't fix myself alone. I needed help to unravel the tangled knots within my life, find myself again, and become stronger in the areas I was weakest. It wasn't an overnight transformation, but with time, I learned to change my thinking, my attitudes, and my entire paradigm for the better. I learned that it's good to ask for help, and that's why I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Toddcast Show. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and the best part, it's 100% online. You can participate from anywhere, anytime that works for you. It's simple to get started. Simply answer a few questions about your specific needs and personal preferences in therapy, and BetterHelp will match you with the perfect therapist from their network. It's really that easy. You can message your therapist anytime you need support and schedule a live session when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is committed to ensuring that you find the perfect match to guide you along your journey to well-being. As someone who went through therapy and came out way ahead of where I started, I want to invite you to take this step to a healthier, happier you today. My life was transformed through therapy, and yours can be too. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is hand-picked for you, all at a shockingly affordable price. And as a special offer for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month by using the special link, betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. You don't have to face life's challenges alone. BetterHelp is here to support you through the big and small issues of your life in a way that can really make a huge difference, both short and long term. Take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. 
visit betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast to get started today.